Hello, and welcome to State of the Revolution, the Michigan Progressive Podcast. I'm Benjamin Klon. I'm Mara Zumberg. Zachary Reinhardt. And I'm Alexandria Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us this week. Uh, please make sure you subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. You can like us on Facebook at Michigan Progressive. And uh, if you want to help support our show, you can subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michigan Progressive. So today on the program, we are joined by Charla Burnett. She is the CEO of the OT Consultancy Group, uh, she is a, and she's a doctoral candidate studying global governance and human security. We're going to be talking about organizing and tech today. We're really excited to have you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Cool. So just uh, give us a little bit about your background, um, yeah. what, you've, what you've been doing the past few years. Yeah, so I'm originally from Lansing. Uh, I grew up around here, but I ended up graduating from Charlotte-Neaton County. Um, but we decided to move back. Uh, I've been away for almost a decade. Uh, after I graduated from Michigan State, I uh, went and lived in France for a couple years, uh, where I was teaching English uh, to migrants, and then uh, came back for my master's degree in conflict resolution. Uh, at the School of International Training in Brattleboro, Vermont. It's a part of World Learning, uh, and uh, it's a place for Peace Corps volunteers. So I was supposed to go into the Peace Corps, uh, and that didn't happen. <laughs> I ended up going and working for the UN, uh, where I was working in the West Bank with Palestinian refugees. There's 19 camps there. Uh, and while I was there, I realized uh, maps really provide us uh, with everything. We wouldn't know where we are without a map. When was the last time you didn't use Google Maps to drive somewhere? <laughs> I mean, we're just totally reliant on it. But Palestinians don't have maps, actually. Um, there's not a whole lot of maps, public maps, of the West Bank that are not uh, controlled by the Israeli government. And so if you use GPS in the West Bank, you'll find yourself uh, at, a, at a settlement, which can be extremely dangerous uh, for Palestinians uh, and for people working for the U.N., uh, we have a big UN marker on the car. We got the big blue helmets, uh, and so you pull up into a settlement, and usually there's an armed guard at the at the entrance. So, what they do is they rely on word of mouth. And my job while I was working there was to work with geospatial uh, engineers to try to create an atlas of our programs across the West Bank. Before that, I had no tech skills whatsoever didn't like math or science. I didn't think I was very good at it. So when I came back to start my PhD, I decided, you know, I'm going to try this out again. I'm older, wiser, more patient. So I'm uh, lucky enough to study under Michael Johnson. Uh, he is the chair of the Boston Urban Mechanics and specializes in public policy and geographic information systems, which is what GIS is. Um, and we use those to do different types of analytics on public policy. And there's a special kind of GIS called public participatory GIS, PPGIS. I've had to say it five times, GIS, PPGIS, you'll hear me say it a lot. Um, and what it's focused on is incorporating marginalized and underrepresented people in the decision-making process. GIS has been used by businesses for decades now. Um, they actually will base stock market value on GIS. They'll take satellite imagery uh, and count the number of cars that go into a parking lot 
and try to guess how much sales a shopping department has, and then they'll buy shares to that uh, shopping wow. center based okay. on those. Hmm. So it literally runs everything, so logistics, operations management. So when you think about it, these technologies have been used by corporations in the, in the majority for, for so long that uh, we don't even realize that how important they are to us and how they can be used to increase democratic practices. So when you think of um, somebody who sits down at the mayor's office, plans out and is creating a development for a space, they're usually using GIS with that space and mapping it out and designing it. Now, usually people don't get the opportunity to put their input in. Right, but now we have technologies where you can go on, you can log in, and you can vote. And actually, different countries around the world have it adopted into their constitution that things have to be brought to the public using GIS. And when you think about this technology with augmented reality, imagine if you could walk down the street, see a vacant lot, put your glasses on, and say, well, is this up for vote for design? Everybody in the community gets to vote. And then it's their design, and they have communal say over it and share and hmm. so well, this technology so some countries yeah. have this written into their constitution yeah poland actually does wow. poland wow. and finland and the uk man i already thought our constitution sucks shit <laughs> <laughs> that sounds yeah it like, uh, sounds like a brilliant idea like i mean in terms of i mean i know like um i mean it's kind of like a new idea to um, policy making which is kind of strange but including like uh, marginalized communities as being like um utilized more and more to make sure that policies aren't leaving people behind so yeah um yeah that's a really really interesting idea because i can I, I can just imagine like developers like completely screwing up spaces um that they don't walk in they don't live in and things like that so it's interesting. The design idea. aspects is like you just had me going with augmented reality. Like you can, like let's say you have a vote for a design, you can like pretend that you're there. You can be in the space and like flip through the different options as you go with your augmented vision and like really just imagine what kind of world you could be in. Yeah, I think it's really interesting too when you consider places like Lansing, where for so long the city was you know like failing and um, the schools were failing, schools were getting shut down. Um, so I know that my cousin who lives in the Genesee neighborhood, the Genesee Street School um, is just vacant right now, and a developer wanted to come in and turn them into, like, these luxury apartments, um, and thankfully, it's not we're not thinking it's going to be going forward um, because the president of that neighborhood said that he wasn't interested in having it flipped into this weird dystopian um, apartments. But I think it'd be amazing, like, just hearing that story, like, yesterday about that to see what the community actually wants. Okay, they don't want that, so why don't we put it to a vote? What? How are we going to utilize the space best? Because obviously it didn't work as a school, and nobody wants for them to be apartments. What can we do with the space? I think that would be amazing for places like Lansing. Yeah, and um, so I've been working on those types of projects for the last few years. I have a fellowship with UC Santa Barbara's Marine Science Institute. And I work for a company called SeaSketch. Uh, I do evaluation for them. But what they do, um, which is really amazing, is they work in island communities and work with um, people who use marine resources, fishermen mostly, uh, commercial businesses, uh, and local indigenous populations. 
and they have everybody sit down and actually map out whoops, map out where um, these different resources are, where breeding grounds are, and then they use decision science uh, to calculate where these new zones should be for protected areas hmm. so that we can make sure that we're not using our marine resources to extinction. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the technology is being used a lot abroad, but less and less uh, in American cities in comparison to our European counterparts. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of the, you know, the, your geographical information systems that you're working with, uh, you're, you're working with a, uh, an organization called Refugees Welcome. Is that, is that right? Correct, yeah. yeah. What do they do? So I founded Refugees Welcome in 2017 okay. uh, after I had conducted a fundraiser with about 12 organizations. They came up to me and said, wow, I've been working with these people over the phone, but I've never met them before. Could you please hold another event like this? And I thought, yeah, I, I think I could do that, but why not build an organization around you know, building these types of connections? This is something that I feel really passionate about, something that I think... Um, cities should be putting into their budget already. Like if you have a huge urban area and there are hundreds of nonprofits working on community issues and they're fundamentally taking up the role you should be doing, uh, the least you could do is provide them with some capacity building support. Mm -hmm. uh, so I ended up finding uh, five other people to kind of co-found the organization with me who worked directly in immigrant service provision. Um, I worked abroad, but I had never worked in the United States, so I wasn't really sure what type of services were out there, what type of visa statuses you need for different services, et cetera. Um, and so now we have a, a board of five. Uh, we take in two to five interns every semester and work on research that our clients, which are immigrant service providers, we call them SPs, uh, and, and figure out what they need from us. So one of the things was they wanted a tool that they could more easily search for services. I don't know about you guys, but I've had to spend a lot of time on the internet, like Googling different organizations and what services they provide. And there's really no set standard procedure for what's on their website. And so sometimes it's like, you read the mission statement, but you're not really sure what they do. <laughs> uh, and you're really needing something really quickly. And sometimes you can't find their email or their phone number. And you're like, what, how do you get a hold of, of anybody? Um, what's, like, what's the point of the website? Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, when you don't have a budget uh, for your website and you're really kind of doing things pro bono, you'll take any help you can get, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I was uh, I wanted to build a tool platform, but I, I didn't have any coding experience. I've been using uh, Code Academy to teach myself, but it's definitely a learning curve. Uh, luckily, I started another organization later, and a friend helped me uh, from Mapbox, but I went to the Code for America's Code for Boston. Uh, it's housed at MIT in Boston, and I said, hey, would this be a project that you would be interested in working? Because everything's public and open source, so anything that's built uh, at a Code for America uh, has to remain like on a GitHub terminal, and so anybody can come and take the code and, and build from it. And I like that idea. I like having things open source and public and free. Um, so they, they agreed. And now we have 56 volunteers that are registered on our Slack who oh. come in on a rotating basis every week on Tuesdays. Um, so about 15 to 20 people a week, programmers, developers, testers, 
and they've been doing amazing work. We just started beta testing with our own staff, and then we'll be moving to have the mayor come test it, people from MIRA, uh, their, their coalition there in Massachusetts, and uh, hopefully we'll have phase one public uh, this fall at some point. Phase two focuses on allowing the organizations to manage the content themselves. So a big thing in the tech world is people will make a really needed platform and then it'll die because you need too many people to manage it. So we're trying to make it so nobody has to be going through and validating this data, right? It's the organizations who manage the content themselves. Okay. So they get their own profile. They get to update that profile. They also get to signal to one another when they're taking new clients uh, because uh, oftentimes you'll call, you won't get an answer, and then you send your client over there the, who's an immigrant, asylum seeker, a refugee, and they're not taking new clients, and it's a waste of everybody's time and money right. and resources. Mm -hmm. um, so we're working side-by-side side with about 40 organizations to develop this platform so that they can use it for themselves. Hmm. And then all we'll need is just someone to kind of be there just in case something crashes or a bug comes up. But it would be one one person instead of a whole team who has to call and validate the information all the time. Right. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I think it definitely solves like a huge problem where um, we have all of these resources available and yet just so few people um, either know they exist or like you said, they have like a problem navigating the system in order to figure out how to use them or they don't even know where to begin. So, I mean, I think that's like a, um, a way to, I mean, we, we, we are obviously expending resources through these programs by offering these resources. So, I mean, um, in some cases, it's not necessarily a lack of funding, but it's just like being able to connect the resources to the people. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I'm understanding correctly, so the the program that, that you've created, it reaches out to the organizations that reach out to the community. Okay. Okay. Correct. Yeah. So we're not remaking the wheel. That okay. was a big thing for me is like there, there again was 600 organizations spread out in just the, the vicinity of urban yeah. Boston parameters. So, you know, I, I also didn't have the expertise to provide like social services or any of those types of things directly to them. Like we already have those services. There. Right. I just want to strengthen those services and connect them with the community and the people that they're trying to, to touch. Cause it's, it's sad when you know there's all these resources and you're holding an event and nobody shows up and you know that people need these resources because you've heard it. Yeah. But everybody's like, Oh, afterwards I didn't hear. I didn't right. know that that's going on. Yeah. I was, um, I was listening to a podcast once and someone was being interviewed about um, how they were starting to reach out to people. And it was, they were mentioning, and this I think is funny because capitalism can reach out to whoever what they write exactly. Like if you look at Amazon, they're incredibly good at reaching out to you with what you want, but yeah. we need to take that as organizations. And I was thinking about that earlier, actually, um, when you're saying something about the city is not doing it, it's like a GIS like that gets used here, right? But it gets used for capitalist, capitalistic purposes. We don't get to use it to better the populace. Right. So I think it's so awesome that you're bringing that in that way here. And that's where PPGIS specifically comes in because it has an ethical and tangible moral value to it. It's not just GIS for GIS sakes. It's uh, practitioners and researchers saying, no, we're not going to say public if it's not the actual public. 
right? If we're not incorporating people and perpetuating injustice systems because the capitalists will have these technologies mm-hmm. and the poor communities don't. Right. And and that's that's like what is so important uh, about this technology that is that if we're not sharing it with the people who, you know, are poor, who are not marginalized, uh, who who can't gra- get that type of education, particularly for socioeconomic reasons, because GIS mm-hmm. is hard. Uh, yeah, the, it is. The, the, yeah, the basic the, programs yeah, in GIS are hard and take years to understand. So the focus for PBGIS and for my research and my PhD is is how do we create these these platforms that are easier for people to use, that are intuitive, that people want to use hmm. and get excited mm-hmm. about it. Um, because if we're not getting people from these communities excited, it's going to keep perpetuating inequality. Yeah, it's just mm-hmm. another resource that people aren't going to use or, you know, don't know how to get to. or just... They're going to consider it like, that's for those people. We don't use that in this community. It's going to be just another one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really important. And, and that's why I founded my second nonprofit, uh, the International Society for Participatory Mapping. Um, and what we do is we actually raise money through uh, mo- yearly membership dues for mm-hmm. practitioners and researchers and students. And then we refunnel that money back towards people uh, in social economic, the uh, less well-off areas of the world. So we provide travel grants, uh, research grants, uh, and a, a conference with uh, technology grants so that they can access the technology. We just put up $2,100 for three uh, recipients to our, our second conference in uh, Alto University in uh, Finland, in Helsinki. Um, and so they will be able to go from Puerto Rico, uh, Malaysia, and uh, Brazil. Wow. So, yeah, we're really excited. Unfortunately, I won't be able to go this year because I'm pregnant and I'll be about 30 weeks at that point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> won't be able to go, but I'm going to be Skyping in and I, I'm excited for our executive board to like meet the people that we've been helping and actually to expand that program. We're currently looking for grants. I am hoping to embed the program at a university like I did with Refugees Welcome. So to make it so that we could apply for larger research grants and also kind of maintain um, empirical evidence-based kind of theory uh, to refugee service provision. We're embedded at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, at their Center for uh, Peace Development and Democracy. Hmm. So it's it's been really great to collaborate with doctoral students uh, from undergraduates. Boston is a huge hub for higher education. There's so many universities, so we Mm -hmm. get such great talent there. but yeah, I, I it, they're all connected, but the way that these programs are all connected is a little bit difficult to get intuitively. Now, the recipients of these as a grant where um, you're going to be able to get them to the university in Finland, they were also students? So some of them are students, some of them are practitioners, and some of them are professors. So we, we try to also merge these three different groups. Um, for the hard scientists, there's usually a disconnect uh, between the practitioners working on the ground and the people working in a lab. Right. And so we're also trying to foster communication between these two groups um, because there's there's often the, the people making the technology are usually the researchers. They're not usually the practitioners. Okay. Right. Um, and a lot of times these practitioners come from underdeveloped regions of the world 
um, and they need a, a little bit extra support to communicate their needs to the the researchers and the people developing the programs. So would your program like help uh, people who are maybe um, working with like whatever projects um, in the science community who, like you said, they're kind of like overlooked, would this even help them get more worker rights, this, this technology that you've created, or is it more, is it more or less of that? You mean, does it provide them access to the technology? No. So if there were like, um, there was a conflict between you, the, I'm trying to remember the words you use. So like basically the scientists and the, not the clinicians, what was the word? The practitioners. Practitioners. practitioners thank you. Um, if there were some sorts of workers dispute, is there something that they could use? Is there a way that they could use your technology, excuse me, to work those out? Or is it less of that? Right now, I would say uh, it's a very under-researched area, and there's a huge gap within PPGIS on that type of programming and technology that I'm trying to figure out. And that's actually <laughs> what my PhD dissertation is on. Okay, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, is how can we actually use the facilitators, practitioners, and build software where they're working together? Um, and as I said, my, my master's degree is in conflict resolution, uh, so I'm a community mediator, and that's one way I, I thought about the technology and how it can be used for strategic nonviolence. Okay. Um, and so I'm, I've been kind of pushing the research community in GIS to think more broadly about this technology, particularly around um, alternative institution building. <laughs> uh, and and so it's been interesting to to see that pushback because a lot of the GIS um, manufacturers are very into urban planning and not so much uh, human rights discourse or preserving indigenous or environmentally uh, fragile ecosystems. So it's interesting to see how we have all these different ge geographers who specialize in their region and then they specialize in their type of GIS. And they don't really get a lot of interaction. So, for instance, the, the conference where we decided to make this organization, there were different hubs. And one hub's like the urban hub. The other one's indigenous rights hub. The other one is environment. And then there was one for the Arctic. Um, and only you went to only the, the talks on your specific hub. Huh. There wasn't really any... Uh, collaboration collaboration yeah. across the board when they're um, all kind of all of those things are interwoven they all kind of depend on each other mm -hmm. you know like the the strength of the arctic definitely like you know with the indigenous communities like you said earlier that live in these island communities those are all interwoven and, and interconnected so yeah but yeah like you said the masters and you said conflict resolution i mean that's perfect it'd be right up your alley it is and um i wish i would have known that uh, it's all based in science, like decision science is an art. Um, and people don't really know we often make decisions irrationally without taking into what? consideration. <laughs> I am 100% rational all the time. I don't know what you're talking about. My toddler about. agrees with that. <laughs> My toddler agrees with that. Right. No, humans are not rational. Uh, <laughs> even, even the most rational of us uh, often make decisions without all of the information um, mm -hmm. So we're kind of going in blind. And what GIS essentially does is it allows us to house uh, and manage and create more data points so that we know and then a computer can help us even make those decisions better. 
So when you think about GIS, you can even contextualize it more broadly as in, you know, the distribution of labor, the distribution of goods and services and resources yeah. mm -hmm. across the globe. And corporations are using it to manage uh, their production lines, mm -hmm. uh, but regular people don't have access because these tools are often so difficult to understand. Now, do you ever um, go into maybe like public schools and maybe uh, have programs that are like, you know, coding programs or coding clubs? I know those are like really popular um, in, in schools. I know there's a big push to get young girls into coding because we're absolutely able to do it, um, but people just don't tell us enough. Um, so have you considered doing something like that with this technology? so that it is maybe a little more mainstream so that more kids are interested in it? So there's actually a GIS van uh, driving around the country, a bus, uh, teaching people uh, across the United States, and there's lots of programs that are now focused on doing things abroad. One thing that I'm trying to do with ISPM um, and get it embedded in a local university, hopefully around Lansing, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, would be to apply for a grant to, to actually reach out to local schools in the Midwest uh, and, and show them uh, GIS. I actually was trying to get uh, funding for a drone, and I sent in <laughs> an application <laughs> to get funding because it's really fun to take the kids out with the drone, take pictures, and then you take those and you the raster data, and then you attach them on top of a geo reference map, mm -hmm. so everything's actually like to scale. Oh, that's and really you, yeah, cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Yeah. yeah, you teach them, like, look at this is what we see. This is what's actually going on. This is how you use the tool. Like, are you interested in knowing, like, how much you walk during the day, where things are, how far it is to get to this space, how much is the land worth in your area, what's the population, you know, what's, what's the demographic, you know, change and shift over years. I knew... I don't know. I get nerdy about it. <laughs> well, it's so mass. It's it's multifaceted. It's, mm -hmm. it's and there's so much. They, I feel like there's any kid is gonna find something where they're like, oh, I could use it for my interest. Mm -hmm. It's like really, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting. It's like a wild like thing, like where like you know, like one data point by itself is just a data point, but like once you build up enough of them, it kind of becomes like a story. Um, you get to like see like where the community goes to gather, or like you know which routes they're taking, or like if the parks are being used efficiently, or if like people like them. Like it becomes like. A, a, deeper it doesn't it, like i like the idea of 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 using numbers to get at like um like i guess like i don't know like real world problems but like really like down to earth problems I wish somebody would have taught math like that in my high school because this would be a, I would be a complete I'd have completely different degrees um and you, you just never really you never really conceptualize math that way. No, you got to figure out how many hot dogs you're going to buy for your party. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why algebra is important, okay? <laughs> but I don't know. Like, it really does kind of remind me of um, that, like... Like, I guess a brain in a certain way, like you want different parts of your brain to be connected. And if you have all these like groups that you were mentioning and they're just not connected, all these data points are just separate and you can't paint anything like a good picture about what's going on. So, Charlotte, you, uh, you're working uh, with or you're helping develop uh this platform called Organize Together. And based on what I've read about it, it sounds really cool and it sounds like it's going to be very, very useful for lots of grassroots organizers. So could you tell us what it is and what it does? Yeah. Um, so Organize Together was developed by a group of 
programmers who all went to university together out in Boston. I met them uh, serendipitously, and they offered their platform for Refugees Welcome. And since then, I've become a, a huge fan. Um, and so the idea is definitely not mine. Uh, Tony Ellis and, and his crew really did a great job with it. And they're still building it out, and they, they still need uh, more investors to make it an even better platform than what it is. Um, but I kind of came on and I, I said, you know, this has really amazing applicability, not just in political organizing, but in nonprofit organizing uh, and education. So I, I work for higher ed, ed as an admin, and I'm so sick of sending, you know, doodle polls and trying to figure out and manage. Because I don't know, people with PhDs, they're really hard to manage. I don't know if you, <laughs> they all are uh, in their own little world. Hurting and, cats. Hurting cats, yeah. <laughs> Uh, faculty's like herding cats. Um, and so I, I, I said, hey, I would really like to be a part of the team. I'd like to work on expanding this and then uh, also bringing it to the Midwest since I was moving home. And what Organize Together does essentially is crowdsource your schedule. Uh, so when you're planning an event for your organization or political campaign, it's often a hassle because you don't really know a lot about your membership and you don't know when they're available, but this helps you do both. So it's not right, only- So how is this better than a spreadsheet? Yeah, so a spreadsheet, for one, have you ever used a spreadsheet and had lots of people working on it and then somebody deletes half of it? <laughs> <laughs> or presses the sort button and the sort button doesn't go across all the columns and then nothing matches anymore? Right. Yeah, uh, yeah we, we, don't, we don't like messing with that anymore. Uh, so the Organized Together gets rid of all of that um, by keeping it all together in an easy-to-use like sign-in sheet. So when a new member creates an account, they'll be prompted to search for your organization so they become a member. Then if you have any questions that need to be answered like, what are your skills? What are you interested in doing? Are you host? Are you want to host an event? Uh, you can put that all together. So they'll be prompted with those questions, and then they'll be asked to uh, fill out a map, like a, a calendar map, and say when are you most available. So you can put down, you know, I'm available on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. and Saturdays all day, and that's it. And so it compiles everyone's schedule could be a few people could be hundreds thousands of people and creates a heat map on the calendar so that you can see where there's a space during the week that's most available to all of your membership and as as we move forward it's going to be able to allow you're going to be able to search by skill by event so let's say for instance for an immigrant service provider i'm looking for people who have speak arabic and I want to plan an event on a Tuesday night, but I don't know when they're available. With Organized Together, you'll be able to click on it, say, you know, skills, Arabic, all of your Arabic speakers' schedules will show up, and you will see on the heat map when they're most available. Okay. And then, what's even great about this is you create the event right in the application. It contacts them. It sends out an email or a text message or both, depending on your preferences and depending on the preferences of your members. So if they, mm -hmm. they don't want to have a text message, mm -hmm. they can opt out. They okay. follow FCC regulations. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, um, and you don't have to like worry about tracking that. We track it for you so you know that they're going to get one the day you set out the event. Uh, they're going to get one the day of and a couple hours before. And it also allows them to text message back and say whether or not they're going to the event. So what I think really makes this tool special is that we actually created a reliability 
um, percentage. So you not only get to see who's saying they're going to go or attend your event, who's actually showing up. And you do that through a sign-in sheet that you have with a computer up when people are walking through the door. They sign in. You know how many times they've said they're going right. not <laughs> showed up. And that actually makes their map worth more in the heat map. Huh. So you're targeting your events towards people who are more likely to show up. Wow, and that's this, really this was done by research by Tony and his team, um, was that, you know, we're targeting people who don't even show up, who have all intentions, of course, probably to show up. But, um, you know, they like to say, we're interested, and then never show up. Yeah, it's like Facebook events. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I really I really like that. That'd make it so much easier if it, we had that technology on Facebook. Exactly. And, and right. so we, we have, a, like, a sliding price scale for any group that's not a registered nonprofit. It's free. So, you know, if you're really interested in... And, and testing it out for a social movement or just a quick campaign, um, and then it goes up from from there. And uh, back back east, I mean, they have big political campaigns of thousands of, of members that they've been coordinating, um, and and they, it's it's blowing up over there. So I'm hoping I can bring it to you guys here in the Midwest and Michigan. So I want it. I personally, I want it. <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> Please bring this. It sounds like it's going to help so much. Like it's so hard to get people to show up, and if I can talk target it exactly at the people who are going to show up when I schedule the event. That's brilliant. Yeah, we're hoping soon in the future you'll be able to uh, just add your like Google or Microsoft calendar, events calendar. So as you change your calendar, it will update automatically. And so you won't be able to obviously see individuals like where they're going or who they're meeting, but they're, they're, it'll block off when they don't have that schedule. So you'll be able to do it in real time instead of having to worry about usual availability times. So these are like the, we're also hoping to uh, connect it with Van for voter registration uh, as well. So you'll know if your members are registered or not. Yeah. Um, there's lots of, of different features that we're, we, I, we have a huge list, it's like four or five pages of we're hoping to get investors on. Yeah, that's amazing. I really like this idea of, of like using tech um like for social movements and and for like the marginalized uh, just because like um it seems like for like the last you know 20 years with the rise of tech it's been uh dominated um by huge companies and and kind of used to um counter democracy in some ways so like seeing it used from a um bottom up way as opposed to a top down um method it's nice to see the democratization uh, democratization of of technology yeah i think that's that's so huge and particularly from my experience of working abroad i've been latin america asia africa middle east now and so i've i've worked in a lot of communities who don't have access to any technology like we're very uh, special. If you look at like the global scale, we have the technology. Even our poorest of the poor have usually the technology that people don't have around the world. And so we're re reaping the benefits. And that that is shown in how strong our economies are in the West versus the rest of the world, because we are no longer relying on just our brains to make these decisions. We're relying on computers. Yeah. And when mm -hmm. we hand over decision-making to computers, amazing things can happen and then very bad things can happen too. So we have to make sure that we fight 
for power over this technology and that we have free access. So the main one of the main distributors of GIS is, is a company called Esri, and they're an amazing company, and they do really amazing things with very good intentions, but uh, the, it's like $1,500 a year to use their tool. Wow. So, and then they, they have a monopoly on, like, the entire GIS industry. So it's very difficult. And even some of the more smaller community-based uh, platforms, they still are not free, even to nonprofits. And they definitely don't provide the features that nonprofits need for free. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that they need to have an industry and they need right. to have a business model. But we, we, I think that the government has a responsibility to create free platforms that at least provide general uh, GIS features and organizing features yeah. to the public. I feel like it'd be hard with our current federal government because you're going to have to start with like explaining to them what GIS is and not just one time. Like, <laughs> it's going to be like five times. But we have the best and brightest. A lot of motherfuckers in Congress don't even know like how Google works. No, like yeah, it's still a We saw that. We, uh, we run ads, Senator. Like they still don't know how anything works on the internet. So like explaining to them again getting them to legislate something like this would be a monstrous feat. Yeah, it's tangential, but like uh, it's like uh, Carson with the REO. Oreo, huh? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, just like a, they're, they're not exactly uh, super educated on even the things that they're supposed to be extremely yeah. educated on, you know? Right. Yeah. So. That's why we need more AOCs, man. Yeah, more, uh, more, I think more young people in I was going to say, people over, like, under the age of 40 would be nice. Yeah. Maybe under the age of like 45 even. Mm-hmm. 50. Um, does this like, uh, so like, um, I'm sure it, does this capture, or I mean, I guess I don't know if it does now, but does it capture demographic data or will it in the future? So you can find out, um, whether or not like your organization is as diverse as you'd like, or you make sure you're hitting the appropriate targets that you'd like. Um, in terms of uh, building out your organization? So just like any type of survey tool that you've used on the internet, that's already embedded into Organize Together, so you can create questions, Mm -hmm. um, any question that you think is relevant to your data collection, which is why I nerd out about it particularly, because I specialize in monitoring and evaluation. So knowing are you actually incorporating these types of members um, is huge. Uh, to me when we talk about representation and and particularly if we're talking about social movements and uh, movements for justice if we're not really incorporating the broader diverse public we're not really addressing the issue no just kind of like more or less patting ourselves on the back yeah which is like what white people like to do a lot (laughs) (laughs) and i'm trying not to be quite like that you know Mm -hmm. we should really be at least documenting the evidence, right? I, I find that a lot of times organizations don't even bother to document what's at, well, what their membership actually looks like. Um, and so it, it's it's hard because they want to be helpful and they have this money behind them to be helpful, um, but they're not listening to the voices that need to be, be incorporated. They're not actually applying the theory. Um, and so any any kind of tools... Uh, that will help us do that more effectively. Uh, I'm I'm ready to get behind. So uh, we're talking about you know using using technology to build and grow 
um, you know, social movements, especially, you know, you know, movements for justice. And so I, what I'm wondering, like, you know, organized or organized together sounds really, really cool. And I really, I really like, uh, what it does. Are there any technologies that don't exist right now that you'd like to see get, be created? Oh man. <laughs> yes. Lots of them. Which I need funding. <laughs> uh, I need funding and a team of developers. Um, so there's there's uh, I have a whole feature list of things that I want to tack on to organize together, and they're like, hold up, lady, we have lots of other features that are in the in the works right now. Um, one thing that's interesting about the immigrant service um, kind of mapping initiative is I want to apply it more generally to organizations, so not people just serving immigrants, but to serving a wider population of people. Um, and I I had another. So, like, starting in Boston, we have this program, right? Afterwards, we're going to keep developing it with our programmers at MIT. Hopefully, we're going to be developing a code for Lansing soon here, too, so coders from the community can come and work on this project, too. But it would be a full open source platform for organizations worldwide to communicate with one another and advertise their services in a way that's... Um, has a standard procedure. So we don't have to worry about whether your website says this, this, and that. We will ask you the strategic questions that your 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 um, clients need to know and the information that's important. Um, I had another one called Pracademia, uh, which I have been developing in my mind and on paper for years, <laughs> but I just can't seem to find uh, the funding for it. And what it is is a platform for University researchers, so graduate students and uh, doctoral faculty, to go online and see different research questions that the general public or uh, nonprofits have that need to be answered, that they don't have the technical expertise to answer mm. them. And so the people working in research can say, hey, I'm interested in this topic. Uh, let's work together and find funding. So then you have a third user who would come in, somebody who's a philanthropist, and say, oh, we have the researcher, we have the nonprofit, here's the problem, here's the question, let's fund it. Um, HeroX kind of does something similar, but what they do uh, is they usually find the, the funder first, and the, and the question kind of comes with the funder. Mm. Um, this is more ground-up approach where the nonprofit and the people needing the question answered create the problem. You go on HeroX sometimes and you'll see, like, how do you go to the bathroom in a spacesuit? It's a, it's a very interesting and hard problem, I'm sure, for NASA. But <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really help us, us people on the ground very, very much, right? So it's, like, smaller uh, issues. And yeah. then you're connecting more localized communities. So if you work in Boston, you're going to be working with organizations in Boston, not solving problems way on the other side of the world. Or on the moon. On the moon. <laughs> on the moon. It makes me think of that, uh, the, the guy from like, uh, I think it's California or LA that was, uh, he, he wanted to invest money in, into uh, research of like what made people homeless. And like he was like this extremely rich person. I'm just thinking to myself, like, I wonder like how, like, I, I get the, like, I think this idea of like philanthropy like in that sense it seems almost as if though um 
they're doing it so they can find an answer for themselves as as opposed to like giving the money to other people to do the work they're asking people to do work for them as opposed to allowing others to do the work that they want to do or need to do so this is this is why i uh, kind of dip set from international development <laughs> um i my passion and my dream was you know to go abroad be a humanitarian i think like every white girl's dream uh, in america right now uh, you bring freedom to the rest of the world yeah and, and then I, I got there are we already doing that <laughs> yeah they're throwing roses at us <laughs> I got to these communities and I had realized that there was such a, a colonial history there where people had been coming from abroad and telling them what they need for decades and they didn't trust us anymore. And how can I blame them? I don't blame them. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't trust these people either. So on top of that, the structure is continuously still telling them what they should do to solve their own problems. And we often have went now the opposite way. So now we just give people money without actually evaluating what they're doing and making sure that it's not uh, being siphoned into corrupt institutions, which is the majority of aid distribution in the world goes into the pockets of authoritarian regimes and never hits the ground. Um, and I just, I felt like another uh, tool in the system. Um, and I, I, I was like, you know, these... These people need help, but they have people within their own communities who can help them. Right. We should be finding those people and, and empowering mm -hmm. them to do it. And I need to go home and help the people that are my people back home. You know, right. we're all people, mm -hmm. but we come from a community. Most people trust you more when you're from that community, and it means something to be there. We make place. Yeah, yeah. you understand it a little bit more. You have. I mean, like they said, it's like it goes back to the developer that you know doesn't walk in the parks trying to design the parks. You know, it, it there's 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 something valued in in lived experience. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I I wouldn't take my experience abroad back for anything, and the the things that I've and the people that I've been able to meet are have shaped my my views and my politics. But I do think that an interesting hypothesis is that uh, the reason why we're in this kind of McCarthyism, Trumpish world is because a lot of our brightest, best, and most well-intentioned people went abroad, um, and we left. And then some of most of us didn't come back. Yeah, We're still was, uh... there. <laughs> and so America is having a deficit of well-intentioned uh, people who are willing to do the work. And yeah, does well, have, I, I've heard that has a lot to do with the um, fact that, like, um, getting access to, because, you know, like, obviously, like, when you, like, I was talking about when you rely on a, a philanthropist, um, there's certain, like, strings that are attached where if you can get a grant, um, you have a lot less uh, in terms of those strings. And abroad, I'm sure that those are uh, much, much easier to get than uh, here in the States. Okay, I can get money to go help underprivileged children in Uganda probably next week to get help to help underprivileged children in Lansing, Michigan. Now, that's a different story. I might be able to get two grand. If I'm going abroad, I'll get 100000 Huh. Mm. So it's... It's a much different ballgame, and I'm still, I feel like I'm getting my feet wet being back in the United States. I mean, I haven't lived in the United States really for five years. This is when I came back to do my PhD, uh, living in Boston for four years was the first time in a long time that I had been living in the U.S. Um, and so it was, it was kind of a culture shock, especially being from uh, Lansing, Michigan, and graduating in Eaton County uh, uh, in the rural community yeah. and, and going to a big city. It's... 
it's completely different territory. And it's a lot of really wealthy people in Boston. Yeah. Yeah. The, the class divide there is like really crazy. Yeah. And I lived in Dorchester, which is actually where my ancestors hail from. I was like, I'm going to live in, you know, in Dorchester. And I didn't even realize necessarily that it was like the, the poor community in, in Boston that people actually looked down on people there and it was interesting to hear people like aren't you scared to walk down the street are wow. you gonna get shot and I was like I, I don't think so <laughs> I know well, all my sisters did it <laughs> I know all my neighbors here and I've never seen anybody with a gun so I, I don't really know but I actually had people stop talking to me and wouldn't come visit me or like hang out with me because I lived in Dorchester wow. which is actually mm. where the University of Massachusetts Boston is located and we're like the the underprivileged urban college uh, okay. Being underfunded a lot recently, we went through like budget cuts and and uh, we're we're fighting because uh, the state of Massachusetts is 48th in higher education funding, even though they spend twenty two thousand dollars per student on pre K through high school. Huh. Oh, you said 48th. Yeah, 48th wow. for higher public education. So That's... Um, it's it's a different ball game when you have like 60 universities in one urban area. Um, and the the usual cost is like sixty thousand a year. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's for like Boston University. Yeah, <laughs> you know the things that are supposed to sound public, but they're not. They're all private. The UMass um, University of Massachusetts system is the only four year college uh, offered in in the state of Massachusetts. So one of the one of the topics or questions that really interests me is you know the the the. One of the, one of the problems that I think that that we need to grapple with is that the power of capital is global. It doesn't know any borders, um, and so in order for us to take it on and eventually defeat it, we need to be organizing globally. You know, and I think that you know, Twitter and Facebook, social media, has, you know, it's been it's been pretty okay at like you know connecting us with people in different places of the world. But when it comes to organizing for justice, I think it's just woefully inefficient. Do you have any thoughts on technologies that could help us uh, organize as a global left? I, I mean, I, I think there's a huge problem with a lack of, of real empathy. We're kind of tired. We've been, we get so many in, invites on a weekly basis that it seems almost futile. Um, it's it's like, oh, I, don't, I can't do anything. And it actually sends you into sheer panic, sheer anxiety about your week. You're like, I can't go to all these things. How am I going to, how am I going to make it? I think the tools are already there. I think the problem, at least in America, um, from my perspective, is that people are just so tired. Like we work <laughs> so many hours. Most of us are underpaid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, and that's, that's a tool of the system. I mean, Karl Marx talked about that, yeah. making them so just tired enough, you know, where they can still work, but not, uh, but just comfortable enough that they don't want to do anything. That they don't want to do anything. And I think we're becoming way less comfortable. We're mm-hmm. very uncomfortable right now. Um, but we're tired. And when, when as someone who's about to have a child, I know that when you start throwing kids into that, it becomes much more difficult to be politically active. Yeah. Because you have to say, you know, am I going to go to jail? What's going to happen to my child? Is the state going to take my child? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's, that's scary. Because you don't know is if it going to be a protest that's children friendly? Can I roll up to this rally with my kid in a wagon, or is there going to be a huge riot? Is there going to be tear gas? It's, it's very isolating 
being in that situation, I know from experience, it's incredibly isolating. Yeah, and when you have, unfortunately, a wider public that's uneducated in civil disobedience and strategic nonviolence, it's harder to trust them because they don't understand the merit of of nonviolent work. They see that as pacifism. They see that as something that um, weak people do, that it's not what strong people do, when in actuality it takes much more strength not to hit somebody in the face than it does to hit them. Believe me, I, I struggle. <laughs> I struggle sometimes. Um, but, you know, so I, I think that we need to do a better job of educating and taking on the burden of our community as a whole across each other. So if you have, if you can watch kids, you know, having somebody to watch your kids while you go to a protest is a huge thing. Making sure that you have strategies for bail and to detainees, which is something that uh, I really try to advocate in my workshops for the, the consultancy workshops here at the Fledge is we're going to be working on civil disobedience on one of the days is, you know, there are jobs that everybody needs to have in society. And that means we, we distribute all of the labor uh, for people who can and for the people who can't have the ability uh, to do things that others cannot. And we just have to realize that there are a lot of people who can't do everything. And we got to be okay to step up and, and work for them. But I, I just do. I, I think that we need to have a radical redistribution of a wealth for us to even be able to create an alternative in institution um, because it's, it's so hard for the single parent, um, you know, the person who who's working as a teacher we're not even paid as as you know teachers and we're so poor right now and so tired that i don't know if technology is going to save us from that that's going to be something else yeah i mean when one of the things i think we've talked about on the show before is like you know the gilets jaunes in france you know they they've been out on the streets protesting and rioting for months on end now since like November of last year, like almost every Saturday. And part, I think a large reason why they're able to do that is because, you know, they have universal health care. They have a strong social safety net that allows them to go out and do these things without having to worry about their own survival, you know, their own livelihoods. Yeah, that's that's huge. And like I said, it's, it's strategic. It's really strategic. It, it stops us from us being able to, to see our true potential because when we know our true potential, we can't be exploited. And we need, they need an environment to exploit us, to gain uh, capital from our labor. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so until we find a way, which I mean, there are like the MST movement in Brazil. I don't know if you guys have heard about them, but they actually uh, go and they, they, they sit on plots of land and take it, claim it from the government, make it public property. They have schools on the property. There's about 150,000 people who are a part of the MST, and they've, they've gotten back uh, 250,000 uh, acres or hectares. It's hectares, I think, of public land. They made it public again. Um, and they have, like, conflict resolution, procedures, and, and you know, I, I think we have a problem when, when we think of utopia. We're like, oh, everybody's living in a co-op system. It's a socialist yeah. utopia, and everybody's going to do the right thing, and we don't need standard operating procedures, and we don't need, like, lists of, of what skills people has, and we don't really need to uh, have HR departments anymore. When in reality, like, we need to be highly highly um you know mobilized and that means that we need to have like rules and regulations 
Uh, and I, I know it's not as fun and it's not as hippie and it's not as cool. Uh, <laughs> but without these, how are we ever going to beat these people of GIS technologies who computers are making decisions for them now? And, you know, they they have they have all the lists of everybody's name and, and how to get them to move. We have to be fighting, you know, empirical based evidence with empirical based evidence and that means we have to put work in and when we're tired nobody wants to do extra work yeah. when they get home right mm-hmm. so i think you <clears throat> kind of hit the head on it well first of all and like the the having the structure because I, I mean um i think one of the more clear evidences of that on the left is uh, the occupy movement which had an incredible amount of energy um but just very few ways to channel that energy into um long-lasting change um so I think it's definitely necessary to have those, um, like structures to sort out, you know, what gets done, who's doing that work and, and things like that. And, and going back to your point about how, you know, you don't think that, uh, there, there's no technology that's going to be like, you know, quote, quote unquote, the silver bullet to, to our problems. It, it, I think it really is going to come down to, um, like bringing communities together that have kind of been, um, through, I mean, through social media and just through, um, our culture in itself, uh, very isolated. Yeah. And people don't really talk to their neighbors as much as they yeah. used to. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really know the people in their community. There's a very big disconnect, um, uh, between our, our, our local area. I mean, we, we know people around the world and around the country, but we, we might not know our neighbors. And that's just like, so, I mean, I think the idea of like this organizing together, um, uh, platform and how it can bring local communities together to have those face-to-face conversations is is going to be um, just one part of the puzzle that is going to take to fix this. A lot of that work, like that, that's like reminder emails, reminder texts, all that. Like think about all that extra work that you're taking away from. Like when you do finally get a person who's like, all right, I'm going to be active. I want to do this, and then you're going to load them with all this like all this little work that you're like, ugh. And now I have to text a hundred people real quick. Excuse me. Will I like sit on my phone for like two extra hours today real quick? And like, it's it just like you lose that energy and that's such a sad thing. And then that person feels awful because they're like, they want to do something to better the world, but they feel stuck. And I can't, I can't say how many times I've gotten a phone call asking, hey, Ben, you, uh, you want to help me, help make vol calls? Uh, like, I've oh, called you for that. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> or, hey, Ben, you want to give a training? <laughs> <laughs> so I had a, I did actually have a question um, about the organizing tool, the grassroots organizing tool. So is there a... An, Excuse my ignorance because I am so, I'm so bad with like wrapping my mind around these types of things, which is why I keep asking a ton of questions. Um, the organizing uh, technology that you have, is there like a specific maybe algorithm that you would have in place? Um, or like a, not like community standards. I don't like using that like kind of like Facebook terminology because it doesn't work on Facebook. Um, but to keep out far right, um, or any sort of hate group organizing, is there a way that we can, you know, keep the sexual predators off of the Dunder Mifflin Xfinity, you know, <laughs> website? Um, I mean, I think that these people have existed in society since the beginning of time, and you're not really going to always be able to weed them out, unfortunately. And I, I think with the lack of mental health services 
the people who used to be able to kind of get any type of assistance just don't have access to that. Um, I think as far as keeping it out of the hands of the far right, we've actually consulted with lawyers about this. So like as a tech company, um, if we say like, oh, we can't help this organization, it's, uh, it's actually illegal discrimination. It opens up um, lawsuits. So I know that our lawyers <laughs> are working on this issue right now. We were going to switch to 501c3, um, but then we realized there were some issues to providing with political campaigns mm-hmm. um, that we are trying to figure out because there have actually been far-right organizations who have come to Tony and his team and been like, you know, we we want to use your platform. And it's... It's not, we, we don't promote hate speech. That's bottom line. Like if, if your, if your future is predicated on someone else's demise, that's not social justice. Um, that's oppression. And so those aren't the types of, of initiatives that, that we're going to support or that I'm going to put my, my time into. So, um, but we, it's, it's definitely a battle because again, they they usually have like all of the lawyers, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they can take you to court and then they'll bury you. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're not willing to participate and that's, that's the crazy world we live in these days that we're actually being forced <laughs> to, to provide services. And I believe that the AOC's campaign and the organized grassroots organization that she was working with developed an app. Um, that helped her get elected. It made things like easier to organize, and they're actually taking them to court right now too, because they refuse to provide it to every politician, and they're huh. saying that that's not fair. That that she has some unfair advantage because she worked with a with an organization that provided tech hmm. to the to that politician. So it's it's an ongoing you know issue, and like we also had we seen with Bernie Sanders' campaign and his application when it came out. Uh, accidentally showed, you know, some some sensitive personal information of of register voter voter registration, and so we have to be very careful as as we're moving forward in this technological age to make sure that uh, we're 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 working within a legal system that upholds justice and try to create a legal system that upholds justice. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Yeah, here's hoping. <laughs> maybe maybe they're just that's too so stupid to understand that. it. That's the you know that's always the hope. But right. well. we we all know that that's not the case. Like we all know that there are intelligent but just. I don't know, emotionally inept people That's on the so right. It's funny, though, like, for cake companies, they get to pick who they work with, but for tech companies, like, you can't pick who gets your services. Yeah. Right? That's that's funny. Well, they're not emotionally inept. They're thinking rationally. They're thinking, I see people who I can take advantage of and gain if I just adopt this really horrible ethics. So, you know, if I'm the leader of a far-right group and I'm one of the guys you see, like, in the suits with the the special haircuts uh, with, their, with their ties on and, you know, they're they're fairly well off. Their parents come from Fortune 500 companies. I don't necessarily think they all believe that uh, white supremacy is a is a good thing, but it's it's a tool, just like people yeah. will take up religion even when they don't believe in religion as pastors and priests uh, and, and get a following. 
Um, so so I, I those those are the people that scare me because they're they're smart, they're educated, they have money, uh, and they know exactly how to manipulate people. Mm-hmm. And the, we need to really call them out for what they really are, and that is master manipulators. Yeah, um, cult like cult people. Yeah. I know you were uh, talking about um, how eventually uh, organizations would be able to see other organizations' events and things like that, and how um, you could make it both like public and private so that. That, you know, um, certain events could be public for other organizations to um, see, and then some could be for like members only. Um, so I mean, that's like probably one way that uh, can be used to, you know, let's say for instance, like a, a Black Lives Matter uh, organization um, wants to have a meeting, but they don't want uh, their meeting details to be leaked to everyone. You keep it only for membership and keep it private. So there are like ways and safeguards to try to keep certain things private, correct? Yeah, and and and. Those are really good ways. Also, so eventually we'll have a public-facing profile where you can go see organizations on there. Uh, you can see what their mission is, uh, where they need skill sets like that that are underrepresented. But then also the members create profiles, so you can see the reliability score on their profile. Mm, okay. You can also like rate them. So if you're a volunteer on the Organizing Together tool, you'll have like a picture. You'll say what skills you have, what organizations you're a member of, whether or not you're wanting to, you know, find more skills that you can invest in your community. And so that's one way that we can also have a vetting system um, to make sure that these people are well-intentioned and not necessarily um, people who are going to be harmful just to, kind of infiltrating. As as anybody, as you should just automatically assume that when you have a political organization, that there's at least one infiltrator in the room at all times. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you, and just treat it that way. Um, you can never be too safe. I know people like consider that like paranoia or just uh, over over worrying, but you can't ever be too safe, especially in times like this when people are literally dying. I, I know for the immigrant like situation and the political climate right now, that that is the probably our hugest problem is is when you're talking about advertising uh, a for immigrant refugee asylum seeker event. Um, you have to assume that someone on the internet can find that information and then target your event. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. ex- you know, especially with ex- extremism, yeah. uh, we 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 do have to be careful and. Unfortunately, again, not many organizations have the capacity to invest in HR departments who make sure that people have security roles and jobs and budgets dedicated to that. Um, so we have to be like very mindful um, when we're moving forward. And, and again, we talked about this with GIS because uh, before we started the show, we were kind of having a candid conversation about security. And... This is why the census decided to stop desegregating by block, because they were obtaining racial information on the block scale where you could then go where, you know, where do all the minorities live? And you could see block for block where mm-hmm. they were living. So you would know, you wouldn't know that their house was that house, but you would know if one block had a higher disproportion of minorities to the rest. Right. right? So that's why now they focus on census track, which is a little bit wider. I still think it's it can cut some edges there, too. Um, and that's why Bernie Sanders' campaign, when they showed all the registration information that had addresses, everybody was worried about that. Because then you could look at, say, oh, I know who all the Democratic voters are and these streets, and I can target them. you mm-hmm. know. And, and so we have to be really careful about personal information. 
and what we're putting out there. Because if you're making a voter profile, like a, a organized together profile, and it's like, you know, I'm for all these social, great social justice issues, and somebody out there wants to target you. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that's that's where we live. Um, and, and I think that, uh, as I said before, that these types of people lived in our communities and have always lived in our yeah. communities, but it's the weaponry, it's the tech, it's the being able to target and find people that, that makes it seem like it's happening more and more. And the anonymity, I feel like behind a lot of the, like everything up to that final step, all those people have all this anonymity that they never would have been able to have before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, and I do kind of have a question. So can members, like when you make that member profile, can members search other members or you can only search for organizations? So we don't have that up and running yet. Okay. So I'm not really sure about what Tony and his team are thinking on that, but I know that this is why it's such a slow process mm-hmm. is in we're testing a lot of these things because we want to make everybody safe as possible. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like what... Mark Zuckerberg said, you know, we can't <laughs> protect everyone yeah. all the mm-hmm. time. Um, I mean, there's definitely uh, things that we can do to make it better. Um, but growing slow, I think, is one of the biggest ways, mechanisms that you can make sure that people's safety is well protected. And I think that that's part of the problem that Facebook had mm-hmm. in the beginning was they didn't conceive Facebook of ever getting that big. Yeah. <laughs> and they didn't realize that people were using it as a communication tool and that authoritarian governments were using it as a spying tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, like, everything in Myanmar happened yeah, in the way that it right. did and, and, and why there are there being questions. But I know that they tried to change some features in Latin America and people rioted. So now they're responsible (laughs) (laughs) for that too. And it's like, how are they supposed to, how could they even ever conceive, you know, when they were making their, their platform that's to that like was meet was girls go. at like was it like Harvard I think it was yeah like yeah. So that was the whole point of it and first. then it was like and I know when when I first got it it was just if you're in high school or college you can get this so of course I got it at 12 and I've had one ever since so like but even I've had it since I was 12 so it's been over 10 years of me having a Facebook I was so far removed from those problems that were happening I had no idea things like what were happening in Myanmar with the uh the Rohingya yeah. the the targeted like genocide of those people had no idea. Like it's, it's very, that's why I had asked. I mean, when you get those, when you work internationally or even just small, like nationally or just statewide, you're just so susceptible to that technology being used to, I mean, really, really cause harm. You can organize people on the left and on the right. And we know that on the right, it's usually detrimental when they get into those, those big factions. So yeah, and I, I, I unfortunately, I, I think that that's going to be an ongoing battle, um, and it, we kind of live in the post world on that. Like, we can't go back. Yeah. So. What if I post privacy? I mean, is this like like a fine line behind like having um, like open, transparent public information, but also protecting people's privacy? It's just like such a hard, hard thing to do. You know, especially like, you know, you're talking about like in in terms of like searching for people like that would be really great. But then like you have to think about all of the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you limit that, you're also limiting your organizing ability. So it's like there's always like these like pros and cons, it seems like for for each side. It's scary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And if you don't work in those communities, like how do you as a developer know that that might be an issue? 
Mm-hmm. You probably don't. And then you not, well, usually, I mean, I guess probably it, it seems probably now it's usually, um, definitely reactive. So it's like, you don't realize it's a problem until the problems already happened. Yeah. Whereas, it's like, hindsight. You, you yeah. About, um, you know, the, uh, P, uh, PG, PG, G S I. PBGIS? PBGIS. It's definitely more of a, um, like, proactive approach. You get to the problems before the it's even developed, so you don't have to be reactive. Yeah, and it took me a long time to uh, understand all these, like, security issues, because I was just like, oh, let's do this, this, and that, and I had all these exciting ideas, and someone's like... You can't do that. Like, <laughs> you can, you can, this potentially could happen, and this potentially could happen. And so I think for developers, it's it's uh, an ever-changing and growing uh, kind of conglomeration of all of these different risks and pros and cons. And uh, But I think we should cut them a little bit more slack. Like, I felt like the, the whole Facebook thing is we want our our information to be public a lot of times too. Like we, we put it out there. Well, especially like we want it out there until something goes wrong. And then, yeah. and then all of a sudden we don't, but we don't even like people as users don't necessarily understand those problems until it becomes one. Like, well, I mean, yeah. personally, like I, I had a, you know, I had my Facebook, um, public for a while and like I was like oh this is fine like absolutely why wouldn't I and then I had a problem I'm like oh well this is why but like I mean that's like when when unless you face that problem you're going to be you know telling developers or you're going to be signaling to developers that that's what you want you know yeah and, and nobody's forcing you to make a facebook profile right every day, right <laughs> like this you 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 take a risk every time you get online and you share your personal information and i think if we educated everyone uh, rudimentarily like about uh security and tech like then they would realize oh i'm taking this risk Right, but we have did mm-hmm. a horrible job at tech literacy. Well, also like you got to think our generation, like when that happens, and you're like 11, and you're like, yeah, I can send my friends funny pictures online. Like my cousin when we were young, like posted her address and whatnot, and like on the internet, it's so on scary, MySpace, we, but we right? knew no better. Right, and well, just also teenagers are kind of dumb. Yeah, like, you you yearn to connect with people, and I oh, think yeah. that that's another problem with um, the younger side of millennials, like. Us. Like we were like tweens and early teens when this technology was really blowing up. And it was just the yearn for us to be like, oh, we can meet people who like dance Gavin Dance, but they live in Texas. Or like mm-hmm. she likes Avril Lavigne, she lives in Louisiana, and I can make friends with this person. And we just, we were so ready to risk it all. We risked everything just to make mm-hmm. those connections. It was, it was that like illiteracy. And now we're more comfortable texting people and we don't even want to call someone to get a pizza. That's <laughs> like, <laughs> true. We just order it online now. We don't have right. to Yeah, pizza just keep texting. It'll tell me when it's online. <laughs> right. It goes back to that like isolation point I was making earlier. Right. Like, even, like, every bit of isolation. But that's uh, a purposeful. I'm going to go to the self-checkout so I don't have to talk right. to a cashier. Yeah. I think that's purposeful though. I think like they're... it's 100% well maybe some of it's more conven- for convenience but I think that feeling of isolation that comes with living here is like on purpose. Yeah, I mean, because like, I mean, if you if you don't have an extreme amount of capital, 
the the only power that you really have is in, in numbers. You don't have, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm going to be real with you. I lived on a deserted island uh, all summer last summer called Bermuda. It's one of the last communal land systems in the world. Wow. Uh, they get a plot of land at birth. Uh, one for their cattle, one for their crops, and one for their house. And it, they just got hit by hurricane mm. uh, a couple of years ago. So we were there. I was doing research with the Sea uh, Sketch, which is the platform that I work with at UC Santa Barbara. But uh, they know everybody by name. They spend zero time on the internet. They sit around, you know, eating and drinking beers and sitting at the beach. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to come back. And I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And why? that's why a lot of Americans don't come back after working abroad because they see the value in kind of tuning out and, you know, getting away and just focusing on family that we, we so yearn for. And even when we say like we're family focused and not politically active, you're still working 40 hours a week. So you're not really family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like people be like, Oh, why are those people so lazy? Why are immigrants so lazy? And it's like, they're not lazy. They just value their home life and being right. family more. <laughs> so it makes them look like they're working less than you. They just have boundaries. They have boundaries. <laughs> wow. That we lost. I know I lost oh, yeah. a long time ago. I work way too much. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to get some back. Like, no more meetings after 9 o'clock at night. That's the boundary. <laughs> right. That's not a boundary. I was going to say, girl. <laughs> What's the last time you got invited to a meeting at night? <laughs> well, well, I'm supposed to have one at 10 o'clock on Thursday. So. <laughs> There's like a decent percentage of Americans that uh, don't utilize the vacation time that they're given. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, or they, they save like, it, they save it, they keep thinking mm-hmm. that there's going to be that perfect opportunity. Or like, um, really I know in my family a lot of times that they get paid vacation time, it's like right before it rolls over and everybody's like, oh, I got a three-week vacation. Like, because you have to use their paid time yeah. and you lose it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Which is a crazy concept, too. Right. Yeah. Think about <laughs> right. We're going to force you. We're not only going to, you know, dictate how much vacation time, we're going to force when you can take it. Mm-hmm. And it's only per cycle, and then it goes away, and it starts over. You don't get it, to just, it like, into, accumulate. It feeds into that fatigue, mm-hmm. that, that activism fatigue. That's, and that's why we have so life. many nonprofits, because our government doesn't provide us with the services we need, so we forced it upon the community to do it themselves. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. an interesting way to to look at it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you say it that way, I'm like, yeah, shit, that is kind of <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, I mean, that's essentially what the government what government's doing there, and then they're saying, oh, well, well, philanthropists will step up, and they'll make sure that you're doing okay. Yeah, And in right. reality, the philanthropist not only is not giving enough money, but then dictates to us how we should be receiving the money. Yeah, yeah like but they're all spending said. money on, like, how to figure out how people poop in space. Like, that's their whole thing. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's a sexier topic. Right. So it's not diapers? <laughs> no, it's they, not. They don't just poop in diapers. Okay. Right. I, I, think they do, I think they do now, but it floats around in their suit, and they're, they're trying to figure that out. <laughs> Too. They don't just go before they go out. I mean, yeah, but I think some of their sometimes they're out of their their spaceship working on the spaceship for like nine or ten hours, so there's no going back in and out. Space poop is a multi-million dollar industry. So they don't, they don't just like you know, like stick a tube up there, or they might actually. I'm not. I'm not sure what they're doing Catheters. right now, but apparently it Would was a 1.5 like, million like, dollar no. question uh, that they were willing no. to give up. No, I'm simple. Like not. It's never mind. Like a plug. Well, like a plug. No, like a catheter in space. Wow, but it like runs. It works on gravity. So like, oh shit, it does. We take gravity for granted. I 
was thinking that they could just shoot it out like a little flap in the back. It just suck out. And then my partner was like, then you're putting in like bacteria and microbes into space and you don't know what the potential future is. Oh my God, yeah. That's so scary. I was like, you're right. We do need to find a best way to solve this like, uh oh. That's actually like part of my, um, I guess it probably feeds into my God complex, but like, when I die, uh, I, I actually want to be like, if, if possible, like, you know, I'm probably not happen, but I want to be sent into space, blasted at another planet, so that my microbial life quite possibly can foster life on another planet, therefore making me God. <laughs> Literally, my partner says the same thing. So <laughs> you're not alone. He's probably guys, a brilliant man. Stop the white man. You guys should Stop. meet each other. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, we're out of time. <laughs> what a great ending. Um, before we go, Charlotte, is there anything that uh, you want to say to our listeners? Anything you have going on? Um, yeah, every Monday uh, from 5.30 to 6.30, or it'll be from from 6 to 7. We're, we're flexible with the time, but starting 5.30 every Monday at the Fledge, we're going to have a different... The Fledge here in Lansing. The Fledge here in Lansing. There are multiple Fledges. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're going to have a different workshop, and the workshops kind of go uh, from like 101, 102, 103, 104, so we're hitting a topic, but we're going at it every week for a while. Um, and there's 49 different topics. Wow. So strategic nonviolence, we have mediation, we have uh, nonprofit finance, marketing, like everything you can think of. And it's $10 a person. Um, Hopefully we'll have a monthly membership if more people become interested in coming every week. Um, But it's to really kind of build and strengthen uh, the Lansing community as, as a whole so that we can since it's our responsibility now and not the government's, uh, <laughs> redistribute uh, resources amongst ourselves equally. And so. Awesome. When does that st- has that already started? It starts uh, on the 10th. The 10th? Okay. Oh, awesome. Very yeah. cool. You got a lot, to, a, lot, a lot of stuff to learn. Living in very exciting and dangerous times, but luckily we have <laughs> very smart people like Sharla doing uh, important work helping us navigate them. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Charla. Thank really you, Ben. Thank you, everybody. I'm glad we got it. to have this conversation about technology and organizing and space catheters. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess uh, to our listeners thank you so much for joining us this week Uh, once again please subscribe to our show Um, you can like us on Facebook at Michigan Progressive you can subscribe to our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michigan Progressive I'm Benjamin Klon Alexandria Gonzalez Zachary Reiner and Mara Zumberg cool we'll see you guys later bye bye